You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. read together verses 18 through 27 of John 15. Verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. It is the word of truth, and it is inerrant and infallible. We thank you that you have given it to us, and that you have have made it so clear to us. And there is truth in this passage about the hatred that the world has for your people, but we are still glad to be among your people. And we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we may behold and love the truth and that we may appropriately obey it. Thank you for your spirit who is our teacher and our helper. And we pray that he would be our guide and our teacher here this morning, even as we look at your word. May you be honored and glorified through our time here together, we ask. In the great name of Christ, amen. Well, we are returning back to John chapter 15. We had a bit of a break there. We stopped at the end of verse 17 last time we were in the gospel of John and There's a bit of a subject transition between verse 17 and 18 that gave us an opportunity to pick up another text for Resurrection Sunday, which is what we did. And now we are picking it up here with the beginning of verse 18. And there is, just in case it has been enough time, two weeks, for you to forget what it is that we've been doing in the flow of the text, I want to quickly give you a sort of a bullet point review of, of what we've been going through so to kind of refresh you about how this whole passage is unfolding. In John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those chapters take place on the final night of our Lord's life. He is with his disciples, and in chapter 13, Judas has left the group, so we are just left with the 11 true believing disciples. Chapter 14 contains a number of precious promises that are given to us as believers that are intended to warm our hearts and to encourage us. Uh, They did that for the disciples. They were intended to encourage the disciples so that they wouldn't lose heart and they wouldn't be uh, anxious, which they apparently were. And then chapter 15 begins with the vine and branches analogy where Jesus gives to us the promises for those who are fruitful branches and the promise that we will not be cut off, we will not be removed from him because we belong to him and we are intimately connected to him. In verses 12 through 17, we have that those two commands, one in verse 12 and one in verse 17, to love one another. This is my commandment that you love one another. And between those two commandments is a bunch of reasons and examples of God's love and the love that we are to have for one another as believers is modeled after the love that Christ has for us. We love because He has first loved us. So His love 
is the reason and the motivation and the model for our love for one another. And now we turn something of a corner, beginning in verse 18, and we're talking about something that is the polar opposite of love, namely hatred. The hatred that the world has for the people of God. And this is an incentive for the people of God to love one another, by the way. It is because the world is going to hate us. That is a tremendous incentive for Christians to love one another, and it ought to serve for that purpose of encouraging us to love one another. When you look at a a world of unbelievers, a world lost in darkness that hates the light and hates the truth, and a world that is allied against the light and against the people of God, it is a tremendous encouragement for us to nurture and cultivate a deep, abiding, agape, sacrificial love for one another. So we're talking now about the subject of hatred, and this is kind of a disconcerting section, at least it can be. I'm thankful that the Lord did not sugarcoat this for the disciples. He simply told them what it was that they should expect. He says in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So he is telling them the reality of how the world is going to respond to them. He is telling them the world is going to hate you. And in chapter 16, he tells them the reason that he is telling them that the world is going to hate them, namely that they would not lose heart so that when the world does actually hate them, and it will hate us, when the world hates us, we respond not by being discouraged and not by losing heart, but by saying, this is exactly what the Lord promised us would happen. It doesn't take him by surprise. It ought not to take us by surprise. Jesus certainly expected this. Jesus promised that this was going to happen. And so there is no reason to lose heart. And there's no reason to be discouraged. And there's no reason to think that God did not see this coming. The world is going to hate us. So this is a, a hard truth. I, I imagine that for the disciples it could have been somewhat discouraging, though it is not intended to be. And as we work our way from verses 18 through 25 of this chapter and on into chapter 16, we're going to be talking about hatred. Doesn't that sound like fun? It does, doesn't it? I mean, I want to talk about love. I came to church to talk about love. We're all about loving one another. Well, the reality is that we also have to talk about hatred, namely the hatred that the world has for us. It ought not to discourage us. Listen, Jesus did not tell this to the disciples to make them anxious or to make them lose heart. This entire passage is intended to encourage them and to strengthen them and to to to... Uh, to take away their fear and their anxiety. So as we talk about hatred, we're going to try and do it in such a way that we mine out of this passage the encouraging truth that is here. So one note about the context and sort of the flow of the whole extended context that I want you to note before we move into verse 18. Verses 18 to 25, I'm just going to kind of outline for you chapter 15 and on into chapter 16, the rest of chapter 15 and into chapter 16. In chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, Jesus talks about the world hating us. That's the subject matter for all those verses. Then in chapter uh, 15, verse 26 and verse 27, he talks about the Holy Spirit being our helper. Then in chapter 16, verse 1, you'll notice he returns back to the subject of the hatred of the world. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to the beginning because I was with you. He returns to the subject of the hatred of the world. Then beginning in chapter 16, verse 5, all the way to chapter 16, verse 15, it's back again to the subject of the Holy Spirit. So the hatred of the world, the Holy Spirit, the helper. The hatred of the world, the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he's doing there? Now the structure and the way that those two things come together should be obvious to us. He is saying to them, the world is going to hate you. The hatred that you cannot even imagine. The world is going to hate you. It's going to persecute you. It's going to pursue you. It's going to want to kill you. It's going to think that it's offering service to God by doing so. But you have the Holy Spirit. 
See, game over. We win. The world's going to hate you. We have the Holy Spirit. The world's going to hate you. We have the Holy Spirit. And therein lies the encouragement that we have the Holy Spirit. And so he's giving to them the bad news that the world is going to hate you. And here are all the reasons why. But you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Helper. He will testify through you. He will encourage you. He will strengthen you. He will be with you. He will be with you forever. So don't worry about it. That's the encouraging part, that we have the help of the Holy Spirit. But before we get to the encouraging part, let's begin with a few weeks of discouraging stuff. Beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now when Jesus says, if the world hates you, at the beginning of verse 18, he is not describing a condition that might exist or might possibly exist. He's not saying, in the event of the world hating you. If it just so happens that the world hates you, it's not, it's not that type of an if. Um, not like the stewardess who at the beginning of your flight says, in the unlikely event of a water landing, the, the seats will float. That's not the type of if he is, he is speaking of. It is the if of certainty. It is as if he is saying, it's if coupled with an indicative, indicating that he is describing a condition that is the case. It is as if he were to say, the world, if the world hates you, and it most certainly will, or since the world hates you, or seeing that the world hates you, then know that it hated me before it hated you. We use the term if that way, even in our own language and even in our own day. Let's say you and I are having a conversation. You say, look, every time, ever since the Lord saved me, I have had an insatiable desire for the Word of God and for fellowship. And I were to say, well, if you're a Christian, that's to be expected. Now, if I say that, if you're a Christian, that's to be expected. Am I suggesting that you might not be a Christian? No, in fact, I am saying, since you are a Christian... That is actually to be expected. We use the term if that way to describe a situation that actually exists. That's how Jesus is using it here. If, and it most certainly is the case that the world is going to hate you. Because for the rest of this passage, there is no doubt in his mind what the reaction of the world is going to be to believers. There's no doubt in his mind. He says in verse 21 of chapter 15, but all these things they will do to you because they hate me. Right? They will do this for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. They are going to do this. There is going to come a time, most certainly, when they will chase you and kick you out of the synagogue and think that in killing you, they are offering to God's service. He's not saying this might be the case, but this is very much going to be the case. This is, in fact, the reality for the church. The world, darkness, the world hates believers. They hates Christians. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says the world? What is he describing there? The word is cosmos in the Greek, and it can be translated a number of ways. It has a very wide variety of meanings. It's kind of like our English word trunk. I said the word trunk to you. I could be describing the trunk of your body, the trunk of a tree, the trunk of an elephant, the trunk of a telephone line, the trunk at the back of your car, the trunk that you keep at the foot of your bed that you store all your memorabilia in. There's all kinds of ways that we use the word trunk. And the meaning of the word trunk is determined by its context. It's the same thing with world. The word world can refer to just the organized cosmos, the organized universe as it is. It can be referred to all that is organized outside of us and around us. It can also refer to the globe, just this world on which we live, planet Earth, It can refer to all of the people on the globe, every individual person. It can also be used to describe not every individual person on the globe, but just humanity in general without distinction of race or nationality or ethnicity. John uses it in none of those ways, though he uses it in those ways throughout the Gospel of John on different occasions. The word cosmos here does not refer to any of those things. The word world here refers to, listen, the fallen world system that is allied against God. It is the way of thinking, the philosophy of the world, the way the whole world is composed of unregenerate man in their animosity and hatred and hostility towards God. And that is how John uses it in 1 John chapter 2, 
when John says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. He's not talking about the globe. He's not talking about people or nations. He's talking about this world system, this way of life, this culture in which we swim that is the world. It is fallen humanity and the fallen world system. Do not love that or the things in that, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. James says in James 4, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In 1 John 5.19, John says, We know that we are of the world and that the world lies under the power of the evil one. So the world is this world system, this fallen, this fallen system that is composed of unregenerate people, all of whom hate the Lord. Satan is their God. Satan is, owns it. He, he runs it, as it were, temporarily. All the lies and the philosophies that come out of and into the world system, they all have their origin in Satan and his mind and his deceptions. This world system involves the, the politics of this world, the culture of this world, the framework, the way of thinking that leaves God, God out. It is, a, it is a way of thinking, a way of reasoning, a way of living, a, a complete animosity against God. That's the world system. And so that world system, that fallen system of unregenerate people that is composed of unregenerate people over whom Satan rules as the God of this age, that world system is going to hate believers. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now that's the encouragement that it hated him first. Because the world is most certainly going to hate us, is it not? This world system is composed of darkness and is ruled over by the prince of darkness. And it is part of the kingdom of darkness. And he rules it and he reigns in it and he has his way and he deceives his people and all of those who belong to the world system belong to the devil. And so in the midst of that and surrounded by that system of people and that system of thinking are true believers who are the light. And that darkness is going to hate the light. So if the world hates you, you know that it hated Christ before it hated you. And there's some encouragement in there that before you and I ever were or ever existed, the world hated Christ before it hated us, right? In fact, the world hated Christ before even the disciples ever knew him or before Christ ever called them, the world hated him. And we see this going through the Gospels, do we not? In Matthew, we see that the world, uh, the system, the world system hated Jesus in Matthew. In Matthew, we have the religious leaders of the nation of Israel saying that he did his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And then he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, and then he was demon-possessed. They hated him. In Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, you have Jesus' own family trying to convince him and keep him from teaching and preaching because they said he is out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's gone crazy. In the Gospel of Luke, he went into his home synagogue in the city of Nazareth and preached a sermon. And how did the people respond? How did the world respond to that? They drove him out of the synagogue and out toward a cliff, and they wanted to kill him. And we've seen this hostility in the Gospel of John, haven't we? seen it over and over again. I won't go back and review all of the times we've seen it in John. It culminates in John chapter 7 through 9 where the religious leaders were seeking every opportunity they could to kill Jesus Christ. And it was the worst kept secret in Jerusalem because Jesus would tell them, I, I've, told you the I've told you the truth and you are seeking to kill me. And the religious leaders said, I'm not seeking to kill you. See, are you seeking to kill him? I'm not seeking to kill him. Who's seeking to We're not trying to kill you. And yet the people in the crowd were saying, is this not the one whom the leaders are trying to kill? It was the worst kept secret in Jerusalem. Everybody knew that that was their plan. And they were seeking every opportunity that they could to kill Jesus Christ because they hated him so much. They tried to stone him in John chapter 5. They tried to stone him in John chapter 8. They tried to kill him in John chapter 10. And now Judas is left and he's bargaining for the, for the life of Christ. And they are at this very moment coming on their way to meet him in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas knew that Jesus was going to go. So they are trying to kill him. The world hated him before it ever hated us. 
It hated him before it ever hated us. So what is he saying? He's saying that hatred from the world is the most certain reality that the people of God are going to have to face. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, that's a name for a demon or, or a dark god, Satan. If they have called the name of the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Listen, if they have maligned the king of heaven, how much more are they going to malign his servants? That's what Jesus is saying. You're going to be like me. A slave is going to be like his master. A, a disciple is going to be like his teacher. Well, they have maligned the teacher. They have maligned the master. They are going to malign and curse and hate the disciple who is just like his teacher. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The world is going to hate us. Acts chapter 14, after being stoned and left for dead, it says that Paul went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and I love how Peter writes this, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among which among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. I love how Peter says that. Don't, don't, be, don't, be, don't let it strike you as odd that the world hates you and that this fiery trial has come upon you. Is this some strange thing has happened to you? Isn't this how it is? Sometimes as Christians we're hated by the world and we sit around and we look at each other and say, why is that? Who to thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk that the darkness would hate the light? Who would have thunk that the world would hate people called out of the world? And it shouldn't be a mystery to us. It shouldn't strike us as odd, as though some strange thing were happening. Peter says this is to be expected. And he knew it because Jesus had told him, if the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you. So there's nothing new in the world hating Christians. There's nothing new about it. Because the world hates Christ, the world is going to hate Christians. And it's nothing new. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is Jesus' intention, saying to them, You know, know you, that it hated me before it hated you. Because when the world hates us, we ought to look to Jesus Christ and say, There is one who endured such hostility from sinners. Listen, nobody has ever been hated by the world like Christ was hated by the world. Nobody. No Christian, no Christian has ever been hated by the world like Christ was hated by the world. They hated him because he was light and truth incarnate. And they hated him with a hatred that we cannot even imagine. And we have to look at him and say, here's one who has endured such hostility from sinners. Yes, we are hated, but we look to Christ so that we not grow weary and not lose heart and say, he was hated before ever I was born. He was hated. They hated him first. Now look at the reason for their hatred in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. If you were of the world, and whereas the if in verse 18 expresses a condition of certainty, the if in verse 19 actually describes the polar opposite. If you were of the world, and he's not saying they are of the world, he's saying it's quite the opposite. You are not of the world. But if you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were of the world, you would think like the world, you would act like the world, you would behave like the world, but you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. You don't belong to the world. And these disciples did not. Listen, as, as Christians, every Christian has a past at one time you were as much a part of the world as the world is. You belonged to the world. You thought like the world. You acted like the world. You, you were up to your neck in the lusts and the depraved mannerisms and manners of the world. You were up to your neck in sin. You hated God. You were hostile to God in your mind through wicked works. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, an enemy of God, and you lived in the lust of your flesh and in the desires of your flesh 
and were as much a child of wrath as anybody else who has ever existed. That is the condition for everybody who is a Christian. But, for the believer, we have been called out of the world, and now we're not of the world. So now for the Christian, your affections have changed, your mindset has changed, your thinking has changed. Have you ever noticed how polar opposite the thinking of a Christian is from the thinking of the world? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever listened to the reasoning of a worldly individual and said to yourself, how do you even think that way? I don't even understand how you get to that conclusion. I don't understand where you're starting from, and I don't understand how you get to where you're at. There's nothing in between there that makes any sense whatsoever. That's the the way the world thinks. So did you at one time, but you don't anymore. Now you've set your affections on heaven. Now your citizenship is in heaven, from which you eagerly wait for a Savior who will transform your body according to the, the, the body of His glory. And we look forward to that. Now we're of a different kingdom. We have rebelled against the God of this age. We have declared allegiance to a higher king with a higher glory and a higher authority. And we are in rebellion to the God of this age who is Satan. And now we live as rebels against the world, revolting against the world and the world system, swearing allegiance to somebody that that world hates. And it should not surprise us then that the world is going to hate us as well. If the world hates you, it not have hated him before it hated you. But if you were of the world then you would think like the world and you would reason like the world and you would operate like the world. You would do business like the world. You would say that that is great. Of all the things that the world says, that is great. You would affirm everything the world affirms. You would hate all the things that the world hates. But that's not you. And so therefore, the world hates you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. This is as much a law of the universe as gravity. That the world loves its own. Get this down, Christian. Let this sink deep down into your hearts. This will explain so much of what you see going around you, on around you. The more that our nation, our culture, and our society and our world turns against the light and attacks the light, the more we are going to see things which are completely inexplicable. We cannot understand them. Let me give you an example. Why is it that progressive secularists charge Christians with a war on women while they defend and deny and excuse Islam all over the world in every corner of the world? Why do they do that? You scratch your head and you say, that doesn't make any sense at all. Islam is stoning women, killing women, raping women, burning women. And you think Christians have a war on women. How do you explain that? It's real simple. Islam is darkness. Progressive secularism is darkness. And darkness does not attack darkness. Darkness doesn't attack darkness. Darkness attacks the light. The world loves its own. Why is it that they will take a Christian baker who won't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding and drag them before a human rights tribunal and find them out of business and persecute them and drag their name through the mud in the media. But a Muslim who won't bake a cake for a gay wedding, a same-sex wedding, it's a free ride. Nobody says anything. Everything's quiet. You know why? Because darkness doesn't attack darkness. The world loves its own. Now, there are little family squabbles in the darkness among the factions of darkness. But listen, nothing will make the darkness unite like the light because they will attack the light. Darkness does not attack darkness. Darkness doesn't hate those who love darkness. Those who love darkness hate those who love the light. Darkness loves those who love darkness. Those who love darkness love those who love darkness. Do you get this? There is an alliance going on. The world loves its own. And if you were part of the world, they would love you too. But you're not part of the world. You don't belong to them. You're not part of that system. And so they hate you. They hate you because you don't belong. You've been chosen out of the world. Look what Jesus says in verse 19. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. What is it that took us out of the world? 
It was Him choosing us out of the world. This is the doctrine of election. Out of the mass of humanity, out of all those who deserve eternal judgment for their sin, out of all of those who are in rebellion to God, God by His own grace, by His own sovereignty, according to His own purposes, which He has not revealed, selected and chose some from out of the world so that He might save them. These are what we saw in John chapter 6 of those people whom the Father gave to the Son. These are the sheep that have been given to Him. John chapter 17, Jesus prays over and over again for those whom the Father has given to Him. Out of this mass of humanity, all of which deserve eternal judgment, God by His own grace, by His own free choice, has chosen some out of that to save. He has plucked and called out of this mass of unredeemed humanity some people for Himself, a chosen people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood for His own precious possession. And out of that group of people, those people that are now belong to Him, they have nothing in common with the world. So now the world for that group of people has nothing to offer us. Nothing. We cannot reform the world. We cannot redeem the world. We cannot change the world. The world must be overthrown. And it will be when Christ returns. It's not going to be reformed. It's not going to be changed. It's not going to be cleaned up and made Christian. It's going to be overthrown. It's going to be destroyed is what's going to happen to it. But for, for the Christian, the world has nothing now to offer us because we've been chosen out of it. We already talked about this choosing back in verse 16. Do you remember that in chapter 15? You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I mentioned there that it, people try to argue that that's just a choosing to ap- ap- uh, apostolic ministry and not a choosing to salvation, though that text does not limit the choosing to apostolic or the giving of gifts or apostolic ministry. And so it must certainly include salvation. Well, here we have Jesus only a couple of verses later describing this choosing, and now he's talking about choosing them out of the world. That's not a choice to apostolic ministry. That's a choosing unto salvation. This is Jesus Christ by his own free grace, by his own freedom, according to his own sovereign purposes, choosing a people for himself. We could put it this way. The world hates the elect. The world hates the elect. You boil it all down, and this is it. The world hates those who belong to Christ. Why does the world hate you, Christian? Because you're a Christian. Because you're a Christian. Why does the world hate the elect? Because they're elect. Because they belong to Christ. Because we are his sheep. Because we belong to him. Because we are his because He has taken us out of the world, because we are the chosen ones, that is why the world hates us. Because we have been chosen out of the world. Because of this, end of verse 19. Because of this. What's the this? What is the reason the world hates us? It's because we're, we're, we're elected. It's because we've been chosen, taken out of the world. We don't belong to them. So we don't have anything in common with the world anymore. And for that reason, the world hates us. We've been chosen out of the world. Now this is a great corrective for Christians in our own lives, in our own ministry. Let me give you some applications for this, for this reality. Jesus does not say that the reason that the world is going to hate us is because we're not loving enough. Okay, you hear some Christians talk, some Christian leaders talk. And they say, you know, the reason the world hates us is because we're just not showing them enough love. It was just last week, a week ago today, the president chided all of us for not being loving, right? You call yourself Christians, but you're not very loving. And a lot of Christians buy that nonsense. They think if we just showed the world more love, then the world would love us back. Does Jesus say that the reason the world doesn't love you is because you're not showing enough love? Why does the world not love you? Because you're not of the world. That's it. It has nothing to do with whether you show them love or how much love you show them. Look, who, who showed the world more love than anybody else who's ever existed? Jesus did. Did the world say, oh, we are, have been wooed by your love because you are so loving and have shown us such love. Now we will return this love to you and we will love you. No. What did they do? They hated him and they killed him. And he was the most loving one ever. The most loving thing that you can do is to tell somebody the truth. But that is the thing that the world doesn't want. It's the one thing the world doesn't want. doesn't want to hear the truth. To those who love lies and who peddle lies and who live in lies and who relish in lies, 
you tell them the truth, it does not matter how you say it. It is going to sound like hatred. They are going to hate you for it. It has nothing to do with how loving you are. Does Jesus say that the world, the, the reason the world doesn't love you is because you're too judgmental? Because you say that their lifestyle is wrong, because you won't affirm what they affirm, because you deny what they hold is true? You're just too judgmental. You hypocrites, you hypocritical Christians, you're just too judgmental. You're walking around judging everybody. You're so self-righteous. Does Jesus say that? Look, the reason the world's going to hate you is because you don't show them enough love and because you're too judgmental. Is that what he said? No, the world hates you. Why? You're not of the world. That's it. You're not of the world. That's why the world doesn't hate you. That's why the world doesn't love you. The world hates you. Not because you're too judgmental. Not because you're too judgmental. We all deal with this with our families, don't we? We know people in our families, siblings, spouses, children, parents, people that are close to us. And we often sit around on Thanksgiving and Christmas and wonder why we're the odd duck out. Right? You're the black sheep of the family. And you realize that when all of the siblings get together, they're talking about you behind your back and they're talking about how judgmental and unloving and uncaring and incompassionate you are and how self-righteous you are and how you think you're better than everybody else because you know the truth and you love the truth and you go to church and you worship Jesus and you think they're wrong and they're going to hell. And we all are saddened by the fact that everybody rolls their eyes at us and thinks we're odd when they guffaw at us. And how do they treat each other? They can stab one another in the back, but boy, do they love each other, don't they? And we, who have shown them nothing but compassion and grace, we're the bad guys. How do we get there? It's because you're not of the world. It's because you don't belong to them. The world loves its own. Do you get that? The world loves its own. They can stab each other in the back and hate each other all day long, but they love each other. But you are the odd one out. You're the odd duck because you are not of them. They're unbelievers. And so you are the weird one. And they will hate you and they will ally in their, they will align themselves in their hatred for you. And, and sometimes as Christians, we all just sit around and sing that song. Why is everybody always picking on me? We want to know why it is that we're the, we're treated like this. This is not right. We feel so bad. The world is going to hate you because you are not of the world. It has nothing to do with how loving you want to be, how caring you want to be. They're going to hate you just because you're not them. What can you do to get your family to love you? Oh, it's really easy. Just abandon your principles, your ethics, your morals, your integrity. Turn, be a turncoat. Act just like the world. Affirm the things that God hates. Hate the things that God loves. Betray Jesus Christ. Be unfaithful to the gospel. Be unfaithful to the truth. In short, be just like the world, and the world will love you. Now, that's a price that I'm not willing to pay. It's a price you shouldn't be willing to pay. It'll cost your soul if you do that. There's another way that Christians sort of constantly seek the approval of the world, not just with their relatives, but you see this in church ministry constantly. It, it nauseates me to see, to see entire church ministries, entire church philosophies built upon this idea of trying to get the world to give us their approval. You understand that this is the whole seeker-sensitive mentality. It is to get the world to love us. And, and so Christians will think themselves, church leaders will think, if we can just get the world to love us, we'll become as much like the world as we possibly can, We'll try to act like the world and sort of structure ourselves like the world and act very much like them, see, and then we'll kind of get really close to each other like this until we're almost touching, and maybe some of them will fall into our camp, and then they'll wake up a couple years later and say, hey, how did I get into this Christian thing? I was just so close to the world. And I was in the world, and suddenly I woke up, and now I'm a religious worldling. And that's the philosophy of ministry for the secret-sensitive church ministry. And they say to themselves, if you know, if we just, maybe if we, if we don't call church, church, we don't call the sermon a sermon. We'll call it a chat, talk, 
a, a lecture. No, that sounds that sounds condescending. You can't use lecture. Well, we won't call the church the church. We'll call it the, the grouping. We'll call it the community. We'll call it the fellowship. We'll call it the gathering. We'll call it anything but church because we don't want people to think that we're Christians. We want to be Christians without sounding like Christians, without looking like Christians. We want to be as close to the world as we can possibly get without actually betraying Christ. And some of them don't even know where that line is and they passed it a long time ago. In hopes that in becoming as much like the world as we possibly can, we can trick them into joining our club. And some Christians, some churches will say, we'll just cancel churches on a Sunday morning and we'll all go out in teams and we'll rake people's yards and fix people's screen doors and, and we'll be involved in the community and show everybody that we're really loving and maybe people will get to like us. Does Jesus say that the world will like Christians who are nice? No, it doesn't matter how many soup kitchens you start, how much money you give to their charities, how many good works you do to them, they will hate you. Not because you're not nice, not because they don't think you're nice, not because they misunderstand your position, not because you haven't been clear enough. The clearer you are with them, the more they will hate you. And sometimes this is what we think with our family members. If I just had an opportunity to present my case clearly enough, then certainly they would see it and they would love me. No, they won't. The clearer you are, the more they will hate you. That's the irony of it. There is nothing, nothing, Christian, that you can do short of selling your soul to get the world to love you. Nothing. The world will not love you. No matter what you do, no matter how you say it, no matter how you word it, no matter how you package it, no matter what, it doesn't matter if your pastor wears skinny jeans. It doesn't matter, and I know this is the second week in a row I've mentioned skinny jeans, but it fits. It doesn't matter what your pastor or what your philosophy of ministry is. The world will hate you because you belong to Christ. So now the question is, is are you willing to pay that price for your discipleship? Christian, are you willing to pay that price? This is the cost of discipleship. You want to belong to Christ? The world's going to hate you. That's the cost. That's the cost. Now, I think that that's a small price to pay. Would you rather have the applause of God or the applause of men? Are you willing to trade faithfulness to the gospel and faithfulness to Christ for the passing, temporary, and flippant applause of a bunch of God-hating people who are allied in their hatred for the light and for the truth? Are you willing to make that trade? Are you willing to compromise the truth simply because you want men to approve of you? You shouldn't be. I hope you're not. This is the cost of discipleship. Faithfulness to Christ means the world will hate you. Get used to it. Deal with it. Understand that there is absolutely nothing we can do to make them love us short of selling our soul to them. There can be no harmony between Christ and Belial. There is no harmony between light and darkness. The world and the darkness system is at war with the light. They always have been. They always will be. We are the soldiers now in the battle, and we need to get used to it. And stop fawning after the approval of men and the approval of the culture and the approval of the politicians. The way some Christians talk, you'd think that the highest honor is to be quoted favorably in the New York Times or on Fox News or in Charisma Magazine or Christianity Today. That has to stop. This sympathetic, what is the word I'm looking for? This pathetic, let's just use that one, this pathetic desire to seek the approval of culture and our country and leaders and people in the limelight. We have to abandon that and come to grips with the fact that the world is going to hate us. Yes, your siblings will hate you. That's the reality. That's what you signed up for. That's what you get if you're going to belong to Christ. So Christian, if the world hates you, it is proof that you are a Christian. Understand that. So rejoice in it. For great is your reward in heaven. 
If the world hates you because, and, and hates you not because you have done anything wrong, not because you have ever been ill towards them. And, and oh, by the way, listen, understand. When we, there are things about the world that we hate. We, you understand that? We hate what they do. We hate what they stand for. We hate how they live. We hate what they teach. We hate what they believe. We hate what they love. We hate all those things. But we don't hate unbelievers, do we? No, we don't. We actually love the people. I have for all of my unsaved relatives, my unsaved friends, my unsaved neighbors, I have nothing but love for them. I don't hate any of them. I harbor no hatred in my heart for any of my unsaved relatives. None of them. But the world doesn't hate just what we stand for. They hate what? They hate us. They hate us. We hate what they do. We hate what they stand for, but we love them. They hate what we do. They hate what we stand for, and they hate us. And don't you for one moment, don't you for one moment call them unloving. No, no, they're the loving ones. You, Christian, who hate what they do but love them and show them grace and compassion, you're the hater. They who hate you, oh, they're the compassionate, open-minded, tolerant, loving ones. And don't you ever question that or suggest that it is otherwise. So what is the cost that you will pay? The hatred of the world. So listen, Christian, if the world hates you, if the world hates you, know this, it hated him first. And it hates you for no other reason than the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. Because you are his sheep, the world will hate you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And if the world hates you, rejoice in it. It is proof that I belong to him. If the world hates me, it's proof I belong to him. But listen, if the world does not hate you, does not hate what you stand for, does not hate what you are because of who you are, then you need to question, to whom do I really belong? Christ or the world? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have given us these solemn words as reminders of what it is that we are seeing around us. We see the truth of this played out in our lives and in our nation and our culture and uh, uh, toward your church today. We thank you that you have made these things known to us so that we might not lose heart and our faith might not fail. These things should strengthen us to know that you are in control of all of these things. We pray that you would give to us conviction in our heart and in our soul and love for the truth and that we would be strong and not be discouraged by the hatred that the world heaps upon us and upon your people. May we constantly be emboldened by it and encouraged by it to know that we belong to you. And our calling and election is worth far more than the approval of the world. The fact that we are chosen, that we belong to Christ, and that he belongs to us and that we are your people is more precious to us than all that this world could offer to us or give to us. So we pray that you would give to us a conviction to not ever want or desire the approval of men or the approval of this world or the approval of the culture, but to stand strong in our love for Christ and to cherish the love for Christ rather than to court the approval of men. We thank you. We love you. We thank you for giving us the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.